Welcome to the Black Theater History Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the stories, the people, and the histories of America's Black theater history. I'm your host, KB Sane. Today we'll be talking with the playwright Carlisle Brown, who is a writer, performer, and producer based in Minneapolis. He has written and produced The Masks of Othello, a theatrical essay, The Talking Masks, Therapy and Resistance, Are You Now or Have You Ever Been, Acting Black, Finding Fish, Abe Lincoln and Uncle Tom in the White House, and Down in Mississippi. His plays also include The African Company Presents Richard III, The Little Tommy Parker Celebrated Colored Minstrel Show, Buffalo Hair, The Beggar Strike, The Negro of Peter the Great, Pure Confidence, A Big Blue Nail, Dartmoor Prison, and many, many others. Carlisle is a core writer at the Playwright Center in Minneapolis, an alumni of New Dramatists in New York, and is a member of the Charleston Jazz Initiative Circle at the Avery Research Center for African American History and Culture at the College of Charleston, where his works and papers are archived. Carlisle is the 2006 recipient of the Black Theater Network's Winona Lee Fletcher Award for Outstanding Achievement in Artistic Excellence, a 2008 Guggenheim Fellow, a 2010 recipient of the Otto Rene Castillo Award for Political Theater, a 2010 United States Artist Fellowship, and he is the 2018 honoree of the William Ing Festival Award for Distinguished Achievement in the American Theater. Two of the plays mentioned earlier, Abe Lincoln and Uncle Tom in the White House and Down in Mississippi, have just been published by Dramatist Play Service, and Carlella has joined us via Skype to talk about those works. Um, before we start talking directly about these two pieces, I'm always interested in finding out um, where people are coming from. Uh, what are, who was your playwriting teacher? What were your playwriting influences? Where did you study? Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Um, gee, you know, my influences were really like a lot of things. I, I mean, I, that's a question I'm like usually a, a failure in answering. Like, what am I, I, I'm influenced by almost anything. I didn't go to school for theater in my former profession. I was a sailor. A, uh, a captain of 19th century sailing vessels. Um, and I did that for, you know, 18, almost 20 years. I, you know, I'd always wanted to be a writer when I was younger. I wrote some things. I, you know, wrote some poetry. And I was interested in theater. I took a hiatus, a sabbatical, you would say, and I got a loft. And I uh, just decided to, uh, you know, make plays, uh, not knowing jack about the theater. And, <laughs> It was a kind of circuitous, trial and error, experiential kind of road that sort of led me here. And how did your first production come about? Well, of course, it was awful. Um, it was an adaptation of Shakespeare's Othello, where I wrote the offstage bedroom scene. So the play was like mostly the bedroom scenes in the play, and there are two offstage bedroom scenes in the play, which I, I wrote. And it was... Um, and I wrote it in verse. You know, there was a critic at the Amsterdam News. He liked it a lot, you know, but um, <laughs> it was, uh, it was like kind of like my grad school. It was, you know, it was uh, an awful experience, but of course, in some ways it was a good experience, but like I learned a lot. And from there, um, as, as a way to improve, I wrote another play um, to try to sort of correct my mishap, so to speak. And, <laughs> And then just kind of proceeded on. And then after that, and that play was a play called um, Smithers and Snuff, a, a kind of a bizarre, very physical comedy. And then after that, I wrote Little Tommy Parker. Okay. Which um, was one of the first pieces that I read of yours. Yeah. And who were your first directors? Where were your first theaters? Penumbra. 
Okay. Was it, was, was Lou the director for all of them? Yeah. He is yes. a, a hero of mine. Yeah. And responsible for a great deal of amazing work in the American theater, so. Yes, he is. Thanks, yeah. Lou Bellamy. Little shout out there. Um, so I want to talk about the two plays now, you know, 20-some, more than that, plays later. Um, <laughs> we've, we've got these two new works of yours. I want to talk about Down in Mississippi first. So this was commissioned by, let me say all this correctly, this was commissioned by the Theater Department in the School of Fine Arts and the Center for American and World Cultures at Miami University of Ohio. Did I get all that correct? Yep, you got that right. That how, how did all of those people come together? How did this project come about? Well, you know, Miami University of Ohio is um, a Western, Western College, the women's college in which the um, Freedom Summer volunteers came to train before they went to Mississippi on what's now the property of Miami University of Ohio. And I'm going to stop you just to let our listeners know that the story in Down in Mississippi does follow those more privileged white students who joined uh, SNCC, SNCC, in that summer to go and try to get people registered to vote in Mississippi. And it's two young characters, one uh, male, one female who are both white, and one black character that they meet. And it's the story of the three of them going through this experience together. So just to help them place where um, where the school fits into that narrative. Right. You know, uh, SNCC and um, uh, I, I guess, was it 63? This is uh, in 63. SNCC had a, a, a mock election in Mississippi. And that encouraged them to do the real thing in 64. And what I mean by a mock election was that, um, you know, that black rule folks, they came out and they registered the vote. They went through the process, but it was like a test. Okay. And and then sort of based on that test, they decided they would try to do, you know, the real thing. Um, but of course, you know, they knew that that was like really dangerous. And it was something that, well, you know, no surprising. It was something that the rest of the country really wasn't really interested in. Right. You know, black, black folks voting, you know, they, they don't seem to be that interested in it now, as a matter of fact. But anyway, they, and so, you know, they came up with the idea to... Um, recruit white students from prestigious universities to go down to Mississippi and register black folks to vote. You know, to basically to sort of put their lives in danger. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea that that then, um, you know, the country would pay attention. Yeah. And even the young white character, they realize no one's going to pay attention to this until it's the white kids from the good schools who say something. Um, which I is interesting to me that that's being published right now because again we're seeing that in our American discourse that there are a bunch of young white kids from a good school that have you know called attention to gun violence which of course has plagued many communities but it's only until the white kids speak up that people listen and and it's so interesting to me in terms of the timing of this publication and I really hope that people are making that connection yeah you know it's it, it was, I mean, as a new play, I mean, it was written some time ago, but um, in terms of the publication, I mean, and in terms of sort of the evolution of consciousness in this culture, it's actually kind of interesting because Freedom Summer, there are a couple of things that are sort of amazing about Freedom Summer and kind of sort of like, you know, very interesting. 
one of the things was when SNCC had this idea to bring all these white people down to Mississippi to, um, you know, register black folks to work with SNCC people, there was sort of like a great deal of conflict. I, I mm -hmm. would say that there was never really a time where um, there was there was a level of activism between a collective activism between blacks and whites. You know, maybe the abolitionist movement was the last time. Right. right? So mm -hmm. these so these these students, they were kids, right? So if you were twenty five years old, you were old as far as, you know, that <laughs> and, and you know, the more I think about that period, you know, it's you just have to be young to be that idealistic. Yeah. And and, and to put your life, you know, you know, like in danger. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, they're young. You know, they haven't figured out who they are. You know, so they go through all of the kind of, you know, what I guess we older folks would think that dysfunctional things that young people are going through. They're trying to engage in each other across these racial boundaries mm -hmm. and these class boundaries. And they have to do this dangerous thing together. So they really had this idea that what they were going to do is save the world. And I think that was particularly the 60th generation. That mm -hmm. We were all naive enough to think that they were going to solve this thing in our lifetime. What they achieved was really extraordinary, but it didn't save the world, so they thought that they were failures. You know, uh, I, I think it's probably uh, the most important movement in the civil rights movement. I mean, you know, there's there's a couple of tangible results, and that is, you know, um, the um, Civil Rights, rights Act, Act in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965 and the Mississippi Democratic Party. And mm -hmm. that was like, you know, the, you know, the black rural folks who were really the leaders of this movement. You know, with people like, you know, a former sharecropper, Fannie Lou Hammer. Right. You know, becoming the leader of the delegation, you know, that went to um, that went to Atlantic City. And I love that she makes that appearance in this play. I love that her narrative and her history is, is part of this, especially because we see what happens as these young kids are literally going out to farmlands and, and catching sharecroppers on in the field to talk yeah. to them about <laughs> what they're yeah. doing. Um, yeah. I, I really appreciated that, that her coming from there and too, because you know, the play does end here and um, then in, in these moments in Atlantic City. Um, it, it's great to see that evolution even within what is a short play. Um, who, who had the idea for this commission? How, how did these groups of people come together to produce this play? Who directed it? What was your design process? Um, well, the um, the professional production was was um, directed by my company. Okay. Um, but but um, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, Anne Elizabeth Armstrong, who was um, I believe at the time she was associate professor in the theater department. Uh, her along with um, a uh, a full professor in uh, the uh, you know, the long title of the commission of the play, mm -hmm. they, they were the ones, um, you know, the Center for um, World Cultures. Um, they were the ones who, uh, who commissioned it. And okay. one of the things that they had, had organized over time were 
they kind of achieved, and I don't know if it's still going on, a sort of a annual reunion of some of the people who participated in, in that movement. Okay. Right? You know, including Bob Moses, and while well, I was down there, um, you know, John Lewis came down. And so, you know, I had the benefit of sort of meeting a lot of those people. You know, there were there were several people who came to see the exhibit and who, who came to talk to me, um, you know, who, who, who lived that experience. And what was really kind of interesting was, you know, they didn't really want to talk about, um, they didn't really want to talk about it in much detail, most of them. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was, you know, kind of largely, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, soldiers in Iraq or yeah. Vietnam who don't really want to talk the experience because it was just that frightening and horrific. Yeah. For the piece in general, what, um, what do you hope it does now that it's out in the world? What do you hope it says to people? Uh, uh, you know, I guess people will sort of have to, to read the play, but, you know, um, you know, what was particular about the civil rights movement was it was, you know, democratic and very grassroots, particularly SNCC, mm-hmm. right? So if you wanted to be a part of it, you know, you didn't have to join a club or kind of, you just show up and somebody give you something to do. And if you, you know, was not into a nonviolent thing, well, you could be violent, but you could do something else, right? right. You know, and that was kind of respected because... You know, putting yourself in that situation was a personal choice. You know, one of the things that, like, kind of is an indication of the clarity of the people who were the leaders of the movement, whether it was, like, SCLC, which was, like, kind of top-down right. uh, kind of leadership, or SNCC, which was, like, you know, grassroots, you know, which they had, like, serious disagreements about how you, yes. how you organize and orchestrate, you know, like, a movement. You know, things like the songs themselves, you know, were, well, they were kind of more just singing. I mean, when you look at the lyrics or the context, they're there to, you know, as I say in the front of the book, you know, to remind you what your purpose is right. and why you're there. And I think I've neglected and to tell, I've, I've not told our listeners that the play is subtitled uh, Gospel Play with Music. Uh, and that between the scenes, we really do have... Um, and not just We Shall Overcome. I mean, there's some really lovely, well-chosen pieces that follow not just the movement, but the character's journey within the movement. Um, so, you know, between these scenes, we, we do have this wonderful, moving music that, that drives it forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, I also want to be mindful of time and want to make sure that we also have a chance to talk about Abe Lincoln and Uncle Tom in the White House. Oh, okay. Because this is a delightful piece. It's it's short. It's a small cast. It's two men, two women. Um, It focuses around exactly what it sounds like. Um, Abe Lincoln, who's really at, at the at the moment where he is grappling with the Emancipation Proclamation and what to do with it and what it will mean, and then magically the character, Uncle Tom, shows up in his room and the play is their conversation. Please talk to me about where this came from, how it came about. Um, it's just a delightful piece. <laughs> I'm, glad you, I'm glad you think so. <laughs> um, you know, it came about um, Ladina Thomas, I believe her name was. Yes, was, uh, Dina. It, yeah, you know her, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, she commissioned it out of Louisville. 
and uh, the University of Louisville. Is that right? It is the um, it's the African American Theater Studies program at the University of Louisville, which Lundina Thomas was the head of for many many years. Yeah, yeah, right. So she asked me to write a play about you know like you know Abraham Lincoln, and I thought the only person that's probably been written about more than Abraham Lincoln is Jesus. You know, I mean, <laughs> you're so, probably right. <laughs> What, you know, I thought, what new could you say about, you know, Abraham Lincoln? And of course, from the point of view of black people, of course, it's the Emancipation Proclamation. And, and so I guess what Nina said was, um, her, her initial question was, was Abraham Lincoln a racist? Ah. And that seemed to me to be a very contemporary kind of outlook because everybody was a racist. Correct. You know? <laughs> I mean, who wasn't a racist? You know, if you... You know, if you put people who, you know, weren't racist, in, in a, you know, during that time, it'd be a very small book. Right? <laughs> and so, however, as a character, he was in a very kind of interesting, I, I don't really think we could know what was on his mind about during the Civil War, um, you know, as an indictment on, on, on slavery. But of course, that's what, the, that's what the war was about. Right. Right. So um, it's kind of the things like, you know, white people just don't seem to think things through. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like the abolitionists, they wanted slaves to be free, but it never occurred to them that they might, like, be living next door to them. (laughs) (laughs) It was only, like, the Quakers who got that. Like, everyone else was. (laughs) Yeah, you know. And then, you know, the idea of we're going to send them all back to Africa. These are millions of people. I mean, how are you going to do that? Right. You know, how are you going to pay for that, right? So, you know, the question I think that was in Lincoln's mind was, well, what are we going to do with these people? And then, who the hell are these people, mm. right? Right? And, of course, Lincoln didn't know any black people. Frederick Douglass didn't want to have nothing to do with it. Right. Right? And I do love that Lizzie makes an appearance, that Elizabeth Cleckley has a has a moment. Right. It's really interesting to see Lincoln then grappling with this like fictional character as the thing that he knows best in terms of representation of black men. And that like Uncle Tom is his answer. Right. And he wants he wants answers from Uncle Tom about like, who are you people? But of course, Tom has been is the figment of a white lady's imagination. So Tom has no idea who he is. He doesn't know what town he's from. No one has a, like, I, I love that everyone is maintained by like Mrs. P and Mr. You know, that the, that the people right. don't have names, that the towns don't have names, that the, the edges around his reality are not reality. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. So I, I thought that would be like a interesting, um, so anyway, that's that's where I took it in terms of being there. Excellent. Um, and then you, your company, um, I don't want to get the name wrong. It's just Carlyle Brown and Company, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then your company took this and produced it after the fact, correct? Yeah. Within the last four or five years, if I'm remembering. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, within the last four or five years, yeah. Well, I... I want to encourage everyone to get copies of these things. They're both available through Dramatist Play Service. I will say for our young listeners that Down in Mississippi has some stellar monologues um, that 
would serve young folks well and there are never enough monologues for young people so um definitely they should (laughs) they should check that out as well but carlisle i am going to begin to end every episode um you are my test run with this um in in creating sort of a, a cultural canon of what our listeners should be reading what we should as a common community know in terms of our literary history and I'm wondering if there is a single play uh, in, in the Black theater canon that you think everyone should read. I, you know what? I, you know, I can only say what just came into my mind, and I don't know why. So I'll just say, um, you know, Derek Walcott's Dream on Monkey Mouth. Mm, that's a great choice. Um, Carlo, thank you so much for your time and for talking with me today. I really, oh, really appreciate it. Um, I adore you and I adore your work and uh, I need to give a a quick shout out to uh, a group of my friends at the University of Richmond, uh, led by Chuck Mike, who did a production of African Company Presents Richard III probably 15 years ago. It was my introduction to your work and it was a stunning performance. Um, And I've I've been... Do you know that that, uh, Chuck and I will be facilitating a uh, residency this summer in June? Wait, what? Uh, at, uh, in in uh, the south of France with African-American and African writers. There'll be eight of them all together. And um, yeah, yeah, so Chuck and I are still... Well, still send him my love and let him know that, that his uh, his production of your play still stands in my mind as, as one of the best things I've ever seen. And it really hooks me on your work. So you'll oh, have wow. to... That's great to hear. Have to That's send him my love. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I will do that. I awesome. Will. Well, Carlisle, so, thank you so much. Oh, you're quite welcome. That was playwright, performer, and producer Carlisle Brown. This is the Black Theatre History Podcast. I'm KB Sane. Our music is by Kaya Caterhurst from the album Nine Pin, which can be found on iTunes and wherever else fine music is sold. The Black Theatre History Podcast is produced with the support of Art 26201, which is dedicated to the promotion of public and community art in Buchanan, West Virginia, and which works to promote the creative and inspirational opportunities in their community. This particular episode is brought to you with the support of a listener who made a donation in honor of the Contemporary American Theater Festival's dedication to producing and developing new American theater. To make a donation to the podcast, or to learn about sponsorship or episode commissions, reach out to us at blacktheaterhistory.com. And while you're online, like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter for updates and information about the podcast. You can find us on Twitter at blacktheaterpod. That's theater with an R-E. And listeners... You also make this podcast possible. Make sure to subscribe to the Black Theater History Podcast on Apple Podcasts. We're all in this together, and we've got a lot more to learn. Thanks for listening. While I come on.